Jordan is like, how did I get dragged into this conversation about Kevin Vanderbilt? Dyson's like, I should be coaching <laughs> Vanderbilt now. Hey there, welcome to Hot Takedown, the show where the hot takes of the sports world meet the numbers that prove them right or tear them down. Today is December 1st, 2020, and I'm Sarah Ziegler, the sports editor here at 538. Joining me in New York City is senior sports writer Neil Payne. Hi, Neil. Hey, Sarah. How are you? I'm good. Did you have a good Thanksgiving? Oh, it was great. I watched the Detroit Lions lose just Oof. like always. Yeah. Nah, yeah. Super great. <laughs> and from Los Angeles is 538 contributor Jeff Foster. Hi, Jeff. Hi. How are you? Good. How was your Thanksgiving? Did you also watch the Detroit Lions lose? Uh, partially. I can't <laughs> say I just sat down and watched that game start to finish. but <laughs> I can, unfortunately. Yeah, same. I watched a little football team beat up on the Cowboys. You know. That was enjoyable. Antonio Gibson. Yeah. But yeah, no, it was bad, bad Thanksgiving football, right? Or is it always bad? I mean, usually the Cowboys are better, but it was particularly bad this year. Yeah, the Lions haven't been good for a while. And so that part of the day is always kind of, ugh, ugh. Well, I was looking at this. The Lions, I think this is their fourth straight loss on Thanksgiving. Uh, but before that, they had won four straight. And then before that, I think they'd lost like, nine straight or something or eight yeah. straight they, they go on these crazy um thanksgiving streaks so it's just you know you never know what you're going to get out of that team unless they lost last year in which case they'll probably lose again this year they're pretty consistently the jets of the nfc <laughs> well now the question is are they gonna are we gonna get something else out of them now that they have fired uh their coach matt patricia who i think none of us is surprised at i don't no think one. anyone Thought no that he was going to last the, the year, yeah. I mean, the players and former players were just openly celebrating. <laughs> that was wild. <laughs> you just don't see that very often. Not a good look for a coach. <laughs> that was amazing. I that It reminded, it like, I really want to go through my life and not have former reports openly celebrate my demise on Twitter. <laughs> I feel like if I... <laughs> If I ever get fired and people aren't dancing in the streets, that'll be good. That'll be good. It's a good goal to have. <laughs> yeah. So is the problem me or Sarah? I'm confused. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> On today's show, we'll discuss how playing a game without a quarterback worked out for the Denver Broncos and the NFL's approach to COVID-19 as the pandemic has worsened in the past few weeks. We'll also talk about a rare first from the weekend in Power 5 college football. And finally, we'll take a deep dive into data with our rabbit hole of the week. The NFL, much like the rest of America, is getting hit particularly hard right now by the coronavirus. The San Francisco 49ers will be playing their next two home games in Arizona because of new county restrictions on the group size of gatherings. As of this recording on Tuesday morning, the Steelers and Ravens are now scheduled to play Wednesday afternoon after an outbreak on the Ravens. Both teams are missing key players, including Baltimore quarterback Lamar Jackson. And on Sunday, the Denver Broncos had to take the field without any quarterbacks, leaving an undrafted wide receiver from their practice squad to the mercy of the New Orleans Saints defense. Games are still being played and the league is functioning, but not all that well. On ESPN's first take, Stephen A. Smith thought the time had come for the NFL to take more drastic measures. I actually think that it's gotten to a point where the NFL should halt the season for two weeks 
so everybody could get their ducks in a row, everybody could get their act together, huh. and then come back after that two-week hiatus and have a bubble kind of atmosphere in their respective cities now you're and just enforce it for the last month to six weeks. That's how bad it was Saturday. You can't, to me, you're cheating the fans, even though there weren't any in attendance, they're watching on TV. When you tell a football team to show up without a damn quarterback, that's extreme. I didn't anticipate that happening. A two-week halt to the regular season. Neil, is that something the NFL could or, or should do? Or is this just on the teams to face the consequences if they don't follow protocol? Well, in terms of the could, uh, they do have that week between the conference championships and the Super Bowl to work with right now. And that's always been their break glass in case of emergency sort of contingency is to spill over into that. Now, a two-week break would obviously spill beyond that, and they would have to kind of um, reshuffle things even more. I don't hate this idea, given the way that things seem to be going and maybe spiraling out of control. I just wonder whether... Whether now is the right time or when you kind of make that call, because that is that's sort of the last resort of, you know, trying to take an emergency measure to be able to finish the season. So it's all about whether they feel like they can kind of ride this out right now and still keep that in their back pocket. And if they think things might get even worse down the line, which is not unreasonable given the the rates of cases right now, I will say that the NFL also does have a pretty robust contact tracing team and and people that are you know collecting data on the players which is one of the interesting things about this Ravens outbreak and the reason they're still playing by the way don't you love Wednesday afternoon football that's a <laughs> yeah. new one to add yeah. uh, to the to the um, the list of uh, ac- uh, you know names for games that we're looking at but the reason why they're playing it despite still having like cases added to the list does seem to be that they've determined through their analysis of, you know, contacts and, and all of that, that it seems to be isolated to the players that have been sent to the COVID-19 list. So we'll see how that goes, but I will say that it, that does seem to be what they're kind of leaning on right now uh, and, and trying to use that contact tracing information to make the call as to whether they think that players are more likely to be added to the list going forward. Yeah, I sort of struggle. I, it seems like they're doing anything to avoid having to use that week 18 option. And I sort of think, you know, this could be them, you know, just not wanting to, you know, disrupt the status quo of a normal NFL season or it could be that they are anticipating things getting much worse in these last few weeks we had that early you know outbreak with the titans but since then um you know it, it got a little bit better but now it seems like it's every week and and i don't really know where it goes from here it, it doesn't seem at this point any sign of letting up at all in the NFL and in the country altogether. Yeah, I thought that this was a really telling stat. So over the first 11 testing periods of the 2020 season, the NFL had 146 confirmed positive tests. Over the most recent two testing periods, which were from October 25th to November 7th, uh, they had 108. So they basically almost had as many in the last two testing periods as they had in the previous 11. That gives you a sense. I mean, that's not out of line with the exponential increase in cases that we're seeing in the country as a whole. Uh, So it does seem to be kind of correlating with that, but it tells you where the NFL is right now. I just, I keep keep going back to the fact that they didn't build in more time in their schedule. And I, I just don't understand why not, because like this was 
after you watched what happened with baseball, knowing that there are going to be outbreaks and probably more with football just because of the contact that people are in, I don't understand why they didn't lengthen that that gap between, you know, put in an extra week between the regular season and the playoffs to spill over, put in more time throughout the season, give every team two buys. They didn't have to. I feel like there are, you know, we we know when the Super Bowl is going to be. Does it have to be then? Did it could it not move a couple weeks back or could they not have started the season a couple weeks early? There were things to do here and the NFL had more time to prepare than any other league. They were and they just they didn't do anything. You remember I remember us sitting here talking in the summer about how like is the NFL just really going to just do this like normal and then they did try to just do it like normal and oh. it's like why? <laughs> you had so much time to figure this out and these seem very predictable. None of this is really that surprising. Yes, of course, there were going to be outbreaks. Really, I was more surprised that there weren't big outbreaks until this week, except for Tennessee. Well, and maybe they were lulled into a false sense of security by the fact that, yes, up until Justin Turner tested positive on the in the last game of the World Series, baseball had been doing pretty good. And yes, they had a bubble for the postseason, although uh, the reports afterward kind of make it debatable as to how much of a bubble it was, how airtight it was at least. But they didn't have a bubble for the stretch run of the regular season and still managed to keep things under control. The NFL itself kept things under control mostly early in the season. So they may have been lulled into a false sense of security that was also correlated with the fact that cases were not anywhere near as high then as they are now. Temperatures were higher, like all the things, you know, uh, that that we know at large is contributing to the spread increasing now just were not in place when the NFL was kind of biding its time waiting for the season to start. And so they may have, you know, prepared for conditions as if they had continued indefinitely as they were in like, you know, July, August, September. Yeah. And the, the big issue here also is just the ridiculous inconsistency in, in how they're making these decisions. I mean, look at the Broncos being forced to play that game. And also the Broncos, mind you, was a team that because of COVID rescheduling earlier in the year, lost their bye week. I mean, they, they got a bye week, but they practiced that week. So it's not a real bye week, which is, is significant for the players because that means they, they don't get a true week off. So the Broncos had already been hit by that. And then they have to go play this game, whereas the league seems to be bending over backwards, you know, moving the the Steelers and the Ravens from Thursday to, you know, Tuesday to Wednesday. And, you know, the sort of rank and file NFL teams, not the sort of pre the, the premier teams and the premier matchups clearly aren't treated the same way as the teams involved in these marquee games that the NFL cares about a lot. And I don't know how much of it is spin with like leaks coming out, but definitely the NFL or people reporting on the NFL that might have sources in the NFL have tried to kind of spin it where it's like, oh, well, is the Broncos own fault they, they tried to spin this narrative of well the broncos quarterbacks were spending a lot of time together not wearing masks they didn't wear their tracking devices and so they sort of cast the broncos to their fate you know i think that that uh and and even the broncos said they felt like they were being made an example out of so i don't know how much of that is after the fact the nfl trying to spin it to be like well we did this because they deserved it right and i mean i think with the Ravens, they were actually spared because they had a bigger outbreak, which seems ridiculous. Like the the Broncos had a much more contained situation and they knew exactly what had happened. They could have postponed that game by just a couple of days and and been able to play it with the quarterbacks. And here we've postponed 
the Ravens game by now six days <laughs> and they still have, I mean, they've had they more. I mean, ironically, they would have had way fewer players with COVID if they just played it on Thanksgiving right. um, than they do now. They're up to 22 players who have either tested positive or have been in, identified as high risk, close contacts just over the past 10 days, 22 players. And now, ironically, like Mark Ingram and J.K. Dobbins, who were, I think, the original sources of the outbreak, are now going to be able to play Tuesday, um, or, oh, I'm sorry, Wednesday, yeah. <laughs> because they've waited so long. So, like, I mean, these have competitive implications, though. So right. I, I do think these teams, um, you know, a team like Denver has every right to be upset about this. I think people were like, well, it's the Broncos. You know, they're not going to like make the playoffs. Well, the Saints are going to make the playoffs. And would the Saints have won that game against a functioning offense? I don't know. I mean, the Saints look terrible, too, right? That was the joke, right? The The Broncos don't have a quarterback to start. Neither the the Saints <laughs> do have a quarterback, and they're not starting him. <laughs> um, I guess maybe the Saints were trying to level the playing field. Um, but you know, fair is fair, Sarah. <laughs> right, exactly. It was a it was a terrible situation because the Saints. The one thing they do great is stop the run. I think their run defense is like historically good. And then here comes a team that's like, well, we're not going to pass. We're only going to run. I was so excited when Kendall Hinton hit that that <laughs> that one completion. Like, yay, good job, kid. You know, if I'm the Packers. I'm not happy about that game because the, the Saints are in pretty good position right now for the number one seed in the NFC. I don't know for sure if they win that game, if, if you know, Drew Locke is playing at quarterback for Denver. And and that does matter. I mean, that that should matter. And I saw someone um, uh, uh, someone tweet about how, you know, here the Packers have had two consecutive games where their opponent had 10 days to prepare for them. And then the Saints had the Broncos without a quarterback, like what's happening. So if the NFL is so is, is focused on fairness, they're, they're losing it in other ways. I mean, and the other thing is that the safety of the players involved, you know, it's not really safe to put a wide receiver out there to force a team to play like that. They couldn't sign. And, you know, I also saw people say, why aren't you signing like Colin Kaepernick? They couldn't because of the protocols. New signee needed six days before they could actually join the team. So the Broncos really had no other choice here. When all the league would have had to do was, was postpone the game by two days. It just seems it, it it seems unfair in a lot of ways. And I think you're right, Neil, that the that the league was trying to make an example here. But I'm not sure that right the correct lesson is going to be learned from that. Well, one lesson could be just like we we joked about this in the NFL chat yesterday, but like have the designated survivor, have <laughs> the have the guy who's, you know, the the Josh McCown type where you like sign them and then you're like, okay, please go away now. And uh, don't call us, we'll call you. Uh, just, I mean, I'm not sure that would have made a difference if you had, you know, say like Blake Bortles was told to stay distant from the team and he didn't expose him, uh, you know, get exposed to, to COVID. It would have made some difference. Obviously, they would have had a, an actual quarterback. Would they have won? I mean, may, against Taysom, Taysom Hill, like you said, Sarah, like maybe, I don't know. Yeah. If the NFL was a restaurant, just serving food at 32 locations around the country, they would have been shut down. I mean, like this is a dangerous to the 
the health of, of not only the players, but everyone involved, everyone on the sidelines, everyone that interacts with that team. What they're doing right now just in many senses doesn't make sense. And, and they should have they should have built in more safeguards against this because because look what happens in the playoffs. You know, that that really is the existential threat. Let's say the Chiefs are getting ready for their divisional matchup and they have an outbreak and, you know, Patrick Mahomes is in COVID protocol and all this. And then what do they do? I mean, now they've established precedent on either side saying if you're just isolated to, you know, one position group and we're not looking at the depth chart like we did with the Broncos, we're looking at the total number. Then we, But if all the, the Chiefs quarterbacks are out, you know, uh, I guess that's mainly Patrick Mahomes and Chad Henney or whatever, but you know, they, they might not take the same. I, I think we know they won't take the same stance. So I think they'll need to figure out how to deal with that. Cause that is where you'll get players, organizations, and a lot of fans really upset at, at how they're handling this. Like everyone is sort of in the same boat here. It's dangerous for everyone to be playing during a pandemic. So it's like, well, you guys, were slight made the slightly worse decision than every player for playing in general. Um, I just that doesn't sit well with me. Also, you know the Saints, law they were fined five hundred thousand dollars and lost a seventh round draft pick for celebrating without masks on. So again, like there are lots of behaviors that are maybe slightly, you know, less safe than than the league would want the punishments are so drastically different to force a team to play a game without the most important position on the field, risking the safety of everyone involved really. Um, when you have someone who's not, you know, he, and Kendall Hinton did, you know, did as well as could be expected, but that was kind of risky to have someone who hadn't played quarterback in many, many years and was not really ready to go take the field that's you know isn't that that's a safety problem as well but it's not the safety problem that the league cares about looking like it's tough on so it's not the one they're going to care about well to be honest talking about the punishments i I think one thing to do is just personally i think they they should make the punishments more severe and the only way to really do that it's not going to be money and it's not going to be draft picks it's going to be forfeiting games um, and I think Which effectively that was, the Broncos did yeah. effectively the Broncos, it was like a risky to your point, Sarah, it was a risky forfeit because they still had to go out there and play. It would have been easier if they had just said, we'll take the L. But, but in many sense, like the Ravens should say that's a loss. You know, the Ravens lost to the Steelers because they couldn't field enough players and, and we're not willing to change our schedule to accommodate that. And you know what, frankly, this is not impossible. The, the Seattle Seahawks, have not had one COVID uh, positive test, which is remarkable. And it, it really is a testament to Pete Carroll. I mean, you could argue being in the state of Washington where things are um, compared to the rest of the country, not nearly as bad, um, probably helps them. But a lot of this comes from the organization. You know, there was an announcement that they were uh, tightening the protocols and Pete Carroll said, well, we've already been playing under those tighter protocols. And so kudos to them. And, and they're also showing that you can do this. Um, yeah. And maybe the only way to really make that clear is to say that's a loss for the whole team because you guys had this outbreak. I mean, it, a part of that sounds kind of unfair. Um, and I think it is unfair. But if they're not going to you know, start opening up the back end of the schedule and the playoff schedule, then I, I don't know what else to do. Well, and 
And this goes back also to something that we said uh, before the season, but also just in regard to sports in 2020, is that staying free of COVID as much as possible is going to be like a, a skill for a lack of a better yeah. term. Like that is a that is going to be a key aspect of winning the championship of 2020 is not getting the virus and not having outbreaks. So in that sense, the the Seahawks are winning and the uh, the Ravens and and some of these other teams are losing. Yeah, no, I think that's right. And I, I think that that should be a part of our a part of our the context around this season when we do get, you know, into the playoffs and we get a champion that like there was more going on here. And and some of these teams really did conduct themselves um, exemplary in an exemplary fashion. Well, we expect this will only get messier, but in the hope that it doesn't, we should update our football survivor pool. Uh, we had some close calls over the holiday uh, games. The Browns almost killed me, man. I know. They I, almost killed me. There was a moment I really thought you guys were both going to lose, and I was just like, let's go. All three of our games were at the same time, which was sort of Well, I, I took the Giants, and, you know, when I saw that uh, Danny Dimes, yeah. as they call him in New York, maybe it's <laughs> sarcastic, uh, when Colt McCoy came in, woof. Yeah, uh, I know. That, that wasn't the team I bet on. <laughs> I was, on my money Giants. All I was, of a sudden, sounds pretty I was, grim. That was the biggest Bengals and Jaguars fan there for a second. Um, but everyone did did win. So the standing the points stand at Neil at nine, Sarah at eight, and Jeff at seven. Um, there's still time here, but but not as much. So the order this week is Sarah, Jeff, Neil. So. I had sort of gamed out going into last week. I was going to get to pick against the Jets two weeks in a row um, because I had the second pick last week, but Neil had already picked the Dolphins. So I got the Dolphins against the Jets. And then I have the first pick this week. And then the Raiders went and played a terrible game against Atlanta. So now I'm like, oh, no, am I really going to do this? But yes, I am because it's still the Jets and... Um, I don't think the Raiders will look that bad two weeks in a row. Also, it's it's the Jets, as I've said before. So I'm going with the Las Vegas Raiders. I almost called them Oakland, but didn't. Yay. Uh, Jeff, who you got? Yeah, the Raiders do seem to play to their team's level a lot, (laughs) which they're definitely going to be playing a pretty low level. But I do think you're right that I I don't see that happening twice in a row with the Raiders. Um, Anyway. I will take the Miami Dolphins. I like the Dolphins. I've been high on the Dolphins for a couple weeks now. I think they're for real. And uh, uh, this is kind of my anti-Burrowless Bengals theme from the last two weeks. Yeah, that seems like a good pick. And Neil, who do you have? All right. So uh, I believe I have not taken the Packers yet. Is that right? Yes. So I'm going to take the Packers at home against the Eagles who just continue to every time you think they can't look worse, they look worse. Carson Wentz is really just out of sorts. Um, So I like the Packers in that game. I'm not one to judge anyone's picks here. Um, just go back to the Tampa Bay pick I, a few weeks ago uh, by me. But it's interesting that you guys are both kind of hoarding the Chiefs. I mean, that's how that's how this works, right? You realize they also, were getting think close it's to the Chiefs may be resting starters. <laughs> just saying. 
I think even with the Chiefs backups, they could probably still um, just win. staying your your Mahomes Chiefs window maybe closing. I'll, I'll you know playing the Broncos this week. Hey, remember when Jeff took the um, the the Buccaneers? <laughs> yeah, how many points? That was a close game, though, right? Wasn't it? it? Indeed, it was not against the Saints. What a terrible pick that was. <laughs> with um, Breeze. It didn't work. <laughs> no, yeah, it wasn't against his Though no, that is important context. <laughs> Don't question my my picks. If the the Raiders are going to lose now and the Jets are going to get their first win, and I'm going to be so very upset. <laughs> you could have also took the Vikings, the the playoff contending Vikings. In fact, I could so not because guy. I took them oh, two weeks ago, them. and they lost to the Cowboys. So. Oh, that's right. That's right. All right. Well, we'll see what happens with those picks. Um, and we'll take a quick break and be back in a moment to talk about college football firsts. As we mentioned at the top of the show, there was a first in college football last week. Sarah Fuller, a senior at Vanderbilt and the goalie for the Commodores SEC championship winning women's soccer team, took to the football field as a kicker and became the first woman to play in a Power 5 football game. Katie Nida was the first woman to play in any FBFs game at the University of New Mexico in 2002. Fuller got a call to join the team after multiple members of Vandy's special teams unit tested positive for COVID-19, and she played exactly one snap against Missouri on Saturday. Vanderbilt lost the game 41-0, was never in a position to even try a field goal, so Fuller only had to kick off once at the start of the second half. Incidentally, Vanderbilt's head coach, Derek Mason, was fired after that game, which was the Commodores' eighth loss in eight tries on the season. But the reaction to Fuller has been overwhelmingly positive. On ESPN's KJZ show, Keyshawn Johnson, Jay Williams, and Zubin Mahenti discussed how great the opportunity for Fuller was, and yet how much more Vanderbilt left on the field. She's going to be the best kicker in the history of Vandy when it's all over. Yes, indeed, because remember right now, it's strange she had the kickoff, but because Jay said they lost 41 nothing, no extra points, no field goal, <laughs> nothing really went down, but great for her Man, to put herself... I, in the you history know, you think about these jobs and stuff for coaches, that's a job that if if I see that area code in Vandy, I don't care what school I'm in, I'm gonna look at that thing. Be like, nah, I'm cool. Because <laughs> you, you, you can't win at Vandy. Only James Franklin has done it. I mean, in the modern era, really. It's just it's you know, too Bobby hard. Bobby Johnson was okay for a minute, but yeah, it's really too just James. Hard. Like James it's Franklin. hard. Can you can you imagine if you're a Sarah, you're like, please just get into field goal range. <laughs> give just me give shot. me a chance, please. <laughs> So how big a deal was this? Jeff, does it matter that Fuller only got the call because of COVID or that she only kicked once? Or is it important no matter the circumstances? I don't think that matters to me. I mean, look, this is SEC football. I mean, that is the top of the. I mean, granted, it's Vanderbilt football <laughs> um, <laughs> against a team that hasn't been in the SEC that long. But um <laughs> So it's the bottom of the SEC pyramid, um, but that's still significant. I mean, that's that's a huge deal. It's a, a huge, huge accomplishment to make that team. Um, you know, I I had a friend in Michigan who was a, a high school soccer star, and and you know, one time I he was out there kicking, uh, you know, just messing around, kicking 40, 50 yard field goals, and we were like, try out for the team, and the team like basically wanted to send him to kicker camp. And they they saw that he could hit field goals, and that was not enough. You know, like it, it even being a kicker 
at, in, in, in the Power Five conference of, of any conference, it, it's really, there are a lot of people who can qualify for those, um, those roles at these schools. And it, it is nothing, I know it's not a great football program and a, a pretty bad team, but it is still amazingly significant to make that roster. Because I, I don't think they were doing it as a gimmick or anything like that. I actually think it was her talent that was got her that position on that role on that team. Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, no, she would not have been called had the kickers that they had all been healthy and able to play. But it it wasn't a publicity stunt at all. It was really, hey, you can do this. Come help us. Um, yeah, which does seem which does seem significant, I think. And uh, Neil, do you, what do you think the likelihood is of more women kicking at power five schools in the next few years? Is this unique to a place like Vanderbilt, which, you know, has a hard time winning in the sec. And and they're also a smaller school and, you know, at least comparatively. So they have a less of a pool. Like, you know, I mentioned Michigan, which is a giant state school and there's people all over the place who played, um, you know, all sorts of different high school levels and different sports. But yeah, it, it, it's still a big deal. Yeah. And I think that it's only going to kind of grow over uh, over the, you know, next handful of years, uh, because like Sarah Fuller was a trail is a trailblazer in the power five, but she wasn't the first woman to kick in a division one game you mentioned katie nida she was the first woman to score in an fbs game playing for new mexico that was in 2003 you've had april goss you've had ashley martin becca longo uh a lot of um you know former soccer players uh i think in in all of these cases uh but they've gotten scholarships to uh division one and even football championship subdivision teams and so i think you're seeing a lot more women kick in general, in football, and not just be limited to soccer, where maybe in the past they would have been kind of relegated to what it's like, well, you're a girl, you can't play football, you have to play the, I guess, the other football, (laughs) soccer. Um, And there's a lot of crossover in skill there. Um, And we've seen Carly Lloyd hit 55-yard field goals at Eagles practice. To be honest, I don't know why an NFL team hasn't signed her. Uh, You know, maybe she's just not interested in playing obviously this year i don't know why anyone would be interested if if you're carly Lloyd, you wouldn't want to play uh in in pandemic football but it, it just goes to show that like uh it's kind of the perfect opportunity for women to make the breakthrough in football because it is sort of a skill that is so comparable between other sports that we've already seen women excel in and and then some like soccer yeah no so some of the criticisms about her playing had to do with safety, which is not that different from my criticism about Kendall Hinton playing an entirely new position for the Broncos. Um, this was a new position for Sarah Fuller. She had only a week to prepare um, for an entirely new sport. So, so I'm going to assume that at least, at least some of the the Twitter trolls envisioning Fuller getting walloped by a linebacker were doing it from a place of actual concern. Jeff, should that be taken into account that these football dudes are huge and a woman on the field could actually get hurt? I mean, most likely not. I mean, we, we like once in a blue moon, we'll see a kicker. It definitely happened in the Pro Bowl with Sean Taylor and that punter. Um, but <laughs> All-time great Pro Bowl. Yeah. Which, if you want to, something yeah. to Google on YouTube, definitely watch that <laughs> highlight of Sean Taylor 
crushing. What was it Brian Mormon? I, I forget the punter. I think name. that's right. Um, yeah. it, 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 it can get a little dicey on a long kick return, but look, I mean, it, she's not small. She's right. She was what bigger than the other kicker on the roster, right? I think she's six one. She's six two. Um, yeah, she's actually taller than all but two. one of the other kickers on the team, and he's also six two. Right there, you go. She would be fine, <laughs> considering if this scenario would be having to be the last ditch tackle on a, a long kickoff return you know i mean she also did a squib kick so they, they were avoiding the return which most teams do anyway the kick return is all but extinct in college football at this point one of the them so i was looking at the vanderbilt roster listing last night and you know they give the heights and the weights for all the players um they listed her height but not her weight which i found very funny like like there's this just dumb gendered bullshit about weight that like you're gonna not list her weight on there. Like, come on. Well, it was imp- it was impolite to ask. Was she gonna kick the field goals if they had a field goal opportunity? I that was the plan. I think so. Yeah. Yeah. They just okay. couldn't get. Because sometimes they have. I didn't know if she's a kickoff long field goal specialist, which is what some teams do. Uh, most yeah. teams do at the yeah. college level where you have a big roster. But that would that's too bad. It's too bad Vanderbilt didn't even score so she couldn't do an extra point or another kickoff but yeah i mean there's still time there the i think she's going to be on the team again when they play this weekend um although everything is sort of in disarray now with the the coach having been fired but i was going to say that one of the kickers on the vanderbilt roster one of the male kickers is five foot seven and weighs 165 pounds so miss me with this, like, <laughs> okay. Yeah. Worry about that guy. Safety. <laughs> yeah. That guy. I mean, and again, they are wearing pads and helmets. He's, like it's not like she's like out Lucas. there. Like, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so there was also some chatter online about the, the kick itself. Now ex coach Derek Mason clarified that it was intentionally designed as a squib kick to play to fuller strengths in how she normally kicks a soccer ball. So she did exactly what she was asked to do, but it didn't necessarily look incredible. Um, I, I don't know if the, those Twitter trolls would have been kept at bay if she had like boomed the kick out of the end zone. But but does that actually matter? Neil, how should we manage our expectations that the first person to do something should also be amazing at it? Well, I do think it was a little unfair to kind of uh, make her squib kick it because it definitely did not look, uh, you know, like what we're expecting. You could almost hear, you know, the, uh, the whoever, whatever kind of crowd they had. I don't know what kind of crowd they had, but in the clip, you can kind of hear them get really excited. And then when she actually does the kick, they're like confused. <laughs> it's uh, sort of like this, like, huh? Uh, and again, to your point, she was asked to do that. It's not like she, you know, she could have kicked it further, uh, presumably. And I think that that was a little unfair when you have this like, uh, you know, boundary breaking moment. Uh, you want to see, you know, like Jackie Robinson and Larry Doby, when they broke the color barrier in baseball, they were Hall of Famers. They were like some of the best players ever. And they instantly sort of you could immediately prove that like, oh, it was ridiculous that these guys weren't allowed to play. And I think if she had been able to, you know, had had been allowed to kick it out of the back of the end zone, that would have sent an incredible message. And so I think instead, obviously it was intentional. They funneled the, the, um, the, the coverage team over to the right and it was to protect her. But I do think that it's a little bit of kind of having it both ways where it's like, well, if we think she's six, two, she's not likely to even be asked to make a tackle, but probably could slow down somebody. If not, then why not? 
let her kick it out of the back. So I think in some ways we were robbed of a, a, a kind of a more incredible moment. Somebody joked on Twitter that like someday when they make a movie about this, she's going to kick it out of the back <laughs> of the end zone. It's not going to be yeah. the squib kick. And, and I don't doubt that she could do it. Again, we've seen soccer players be able to kick the ball an incredible distance. I'm not worried about that. And so I think uh, the, maybe there's a reason Derek Mason is the ex-coach of Vanderbilt uh, because he should have <laughs> I think let, there are lots of reasons. There's a lot of reasons. This is not the straw that broke the camel's back, but like he should have let her you know, cut loose. What difference would it have made? I think it would have been such a more incredible statement um, to just let her do that. And nobody could have said, I think it would have totally silenced any trolls on Twitter about, oh, this is just a PR stunt or whatever, because you couldn't say that if it like looked like a normal kick, whereas now they have cover to be like, oh, she could only kick it, you know, this squib kick or whatever. When it's like, yeah, she did that on purpose. And the coach sh uh, probably should have asked her to just do a normal. Case. Yeah, don't. This is uh, this is. Don't listen to the trolls. It was a planned <laughs> squib kick. It was perfectly executed. Teams do squib kicks all the time. She did exactly. And that's also what sad, though. Doing a squib kick in the second half when you're down by, uh, like, you've just given up at that point. It just was sad. I mean, they had a strategy. You don't want the team an opportunity to return return the ball, and you see teams but do like, it all how, what the time. What is the What are the odds of a team returning a kick? If you're so bad that you think the odds are significant that a team will return a kick on you, like again, Derek Mason. Should have, should have been fired. But look, she two things. Vanderbilt is bad. They're, I mean, I don't think their their return coverage game is good anyway. Like regardless of who they have kicking the ball, they're not a good team in general. Two, it was she had just joined the team. I really do think they were trying to like do the kick they knew she could do. I am not. I mean, I don't know if I assume she has the ability to kick it out of the end zone. Doing that, your first kick in a game with a team you haven't played with before, you know, having just joined the team. I do think that's a little bit trickier. And I, I don't blame him for setting her up for what would be, you know, success for what they wanted. I I also don't blame him for not taking into account what people on Twitter would say about the kick after it happened too, right? Like he was doing, I think he was doing what he thought was best for her and was best for his team. Um, so I didn't, I didn't mind that it was a squib kick. I also think like I've seen bad kicks made by scholarship players regularly on my team. In fact, my team's kicking is terrible all the time. Terrible. So like, this is not, it didn't seem like, Oh, that's such a bad kick to me. That seemed like, yeah, that is a kick made in a college football game. That, that looked very familiar to me. Yeah. No one would think twice of it if it was anyone else kicking. No, I mean, that happens all the time. And so I do understand your point, Neil, that like, it would have been nice to have this movie, this Hollywood moment, but, but this is sort of the thing about, about having a, you know, about this situation and like why, why it's a little bit unfortunate that we're not having scholarship practicing female players. And instead she was a uh, last resort and added to the team just in a desperation. Um, and so they had to put her in a place where they thought, you know, everyone would succeed the best. If she had been on scholarship and had been with the team this whole semester. It's a different thing, I think. Anyway, I hope that she plays against Georgia and that she kicks it. Out I of hope the end she zone. kicks a field goal. <laughs> yes, you know, I hope she know, kicks a field goal next time. Do you know what would guarantee her, Sarah Fuller, or really any um, female kicker in college football a, a permanent job is if she learns how to master the onside kick. 
which <laughs> kickers have not have clearly lost the ability to do. Um, part of it's the rules, but yeah. that all of a sudden becomes an essential weapon for any college football team, especially a bad college football team that is often in that situation. She, she could probably get a job in the NFL if she gets that onside kick down. Oh man, if you're an onside kick specialist, how amazing. Like that would be a very valuable player. Like if you can somehow reliably make uh, get onside kicks that your team recovers, I don't know what percentage of the time, even if it's like what's the rate now? It's a, if it's oh, a it's surprise onside, it's like uh 5% or something if that. Uh if you could make it like 10% of the time, would how valuable would that player be? I think you'd need magic to do it. It's like impossible. <laughs> Um, but you know, there you go. Magic. That's what we need in, in the NFL. <laughs> I think we can put a pin in this discussion for now. We'll be back in a moment for our rabbit hole of the week. At 538, we often find ourselves falling down various rabbit holes of data. Some lead to stories, some don't. We end each week's show with one of these descents, the hot takedown rabbit hole of the week. Neil, take it away. Okay, so uh, let's dive a little bit more into the numbers from that Broncos Saints game because we talked about it earlier, but I don't I don't think we really have given it the deep dive that it deserves. And although, you know, we feel for Denver's healthy players, their playoff hopes, as slim as they were, were basically eradicated because they had to play this game instead of it being postponed. Feel for Kendall Hinton. He was asked to do something he should never have been put in a position, pun intended, to do. But let's be honest. Weird stuff like this also just has rabbit hole written all over it. It really, uh, when I saw that this was happening, I was like, this is probably going to be the rabbit hole for for this week's show. So Hinton, he went one for nine, 13 yards, two interceptions, one sack, a QBR of 0.1. This is on the uh, zero to 100 scale of QBR, which definitely was one of the worst games ever by a quarterback, if we are going to call him that. He was their starter at quarterback, although he didn't take the first snap of the game. Uh, I think Philip Lindsay was <laughs> was that. So I guess maybe you could call him the starting quarterback. Who knows what to do with this game? Uh, since ESPN started calculating QBR in 2006, though, only two other games achieved a QBR of 0.1. One was Rex Grossman of the Bears against the Packers in December of 2006. The other was Chris Redman of the Falcons against the Bucks in December of 2007. That was the Falcons team where their coach quit uh, in the middle of the season. Mike Vick had gone to prison for dogfighting. Chris Redman was kind of thrown in. He can relate to Kendall Hinton in this situation. Uh, but both of those guys at least cracked 30 passing yards in their terrible game. Hinton, again, had 13. But as bad as he was... There have been worse performances if we zoom out a little bit on football history. So since 1950, there have been six games where a passer attempted at least nine throws and completed zero of them. Hinton had one completion at least. Uh, five of those came in 1980 or earlier, but one belonged to Cordell Slash Stewart of the Steelers in 1997. He went 0 for 10. He didn't throw any picks, but he was sacked also. So that game kind of in the neighborhood. Again, it was an example of a guy who was a receiver slash quarterback uh, who was asked to throw and uh, did not throw well on that particular day. As a team, the Broncos produced just 12 net passing yards between Hinton, Royce Freeman, uh, Lindsey, all these various snap, uh, snap takers. Uh, it was just the second time since 2000 that a team finished with one or fewer completions in a game. Uh, the 
49ers Cody Pickett went one for 13 for 28 yards and an interception against the Bears in 2005. That was a classic 17 to 9 Bears style win. Uh, they were also the first team with more interceptions in a game than completions since the Ryan Leaf led Chargers in 1998 against the Kansas City Chiefs. But again, there have been other historical teams who did just as bad as the Broncos at passing, if not worse. Since 1940, there have been 31 games where a team had a passer rating of 0.0, like the Broncos, and even fewer net passing yards than Denver did on Sunday. In 1976, there was a game where the Packers, Lynn Dickey, and Carlos Brown went a collective 5 for 23 with negative 35 net yards and three interceptions in a game against the Bengals. A lot of sacks in that game, obviously, to get those negative 35 net yards. And 1976 was the dark age for passing, a far cry from 2020. But as recently as 2009, there was a snowy game at Foxborough for the Tennessee Titans where Kerry Collins and Vince Young combined to go two for 14 for negative seven net yards and two picks, part of a 59 to nothing loss to the New England Patriots. Compared with that, things actually could have been worse for Hinton and the Broncos. They could have lost 59 to nothing. Uh, And maybe one reason why they didn't was that the saints were using gadget passer receiver swiss army knife whatever Taysom hill at quarterback in drew Brees' absence hill actually looked pretty good last week against the falcons but he in this game he went nine for 16 for 78 yards no touchdowns three sacks and a pick he himself had a qbr of 33.8 that's not great league average is over 50 uh knowing denver's quarterback situation I'm pretty sure Sean Payton's game plan was just for Hill to kind of manage things to the victory. It wouldn't have been that hard as long as you avoid too many mistakes to beat a team without quarterbacks. But it resulted in this game where combined, the Broncos and Saints had just 75 net passing yards between both teams, which was only the third time that had happened since 1982. The other two cases both came in week 17s, which produced some pretty funny stat lines of their own. One of them was in 2003, the Chargers, who were led by Drew Brees, that's how long he's been playing, he went 15 for 28 with 74 net yards, that's not great, but he beat the Raiders, whose starter Rick Meyer went 4 for 11 for negative 14 net yards, then was replaced by T. Martin, shout out to the 1998 Tennessee Volunteers, (laughs) uh, who went 2 for 11 with a pick, but at least he gained 14 net yards. And then seven years after that, the Jets, I don't know if you remember this game, Jeff, the Jets shellacked the Bengals on the last day of the regular season. And you had to know that in a game notable for poor passing performance, Mark Sanchez would have been involved. He went eight for 16 with 63 yards, a perfectly Sanchezian performance. <laughs> on the other side, Bengal starter Carson Palmer was, to be honest, to be quite frank, Hinton-esque. He was one for 11 for zero yards and an interception before being replaced by the quintessential journeyman backup J.T. O'Sullivan, who was three for eight with zero net yards as well after you back out the the numbers from sacks. And sadly, that was Palmer's last game as a Cincinnati Bengal, a fitting send-off it was not for the one-time Pro Bowl quarterback for them. Uh, So anyway, I think for all of us kind of thinking about this game going in, the Broncos Saints game, there were maybe hopes that it would recall Miami's epic wildcat formation win over the Patriots in 2008 with Ronnie Brown and evoking memories of Brown who gained 113 yards on the ground and tacked on 19 more in the air. He had five total touchdown plays he was involved in was probably Denver's only real chance to be competitive. 
But we have to remember in that game, Dolphins quarterback Chad Pennington was 17 for 20 for 226 yards as well, helping Miami roll up 461 yards of total offense. So really, in order for the Wildcat to work, yes, you need to have someone who can run the ball, but you also have, have, have to have some credible threat of passing to keep the defense on its toes when you aren't snapping the ball directly to a running back. And we saw the Broncos do that somewhat vaguely effectively for a couple plays on their first drive, but then the Saints realized that they really had no other option other than that, and the game turned into a disaster. Hopefully, we won't ever have to see a team be put in that situation again, but it did make for some pretty bizarre and historic numbers, and that means it made for a rabbit hole. (laughs) For the record, I was at that Jets game. Oh, no. (laughs) Did you know you were witnessing history? I didn't. I do remember it was freezing, just very, very cold and very windy. So I'm sure that I'm actually curious how many of these games you mentioned weather played a major factor. You would assume it it would. Um, but yeah, it says it says at Pro Football Reference, 20 degrees uh, with a 17 mile per hour uh, wind and a wind chill of four degrees uh, at at kickoff in that game. Oh my gosh! Yeah, but it was it was fun because uh, the Jets were going to the playoffs and they had a good defense. They played that was the one where they played the Bengals the next week in the wild card. So it was kind of weird back to back games. I was surprised that the Wildcat wasn't just used all the time or like a you know, triple option or some like run, just run, just run the ball all the time. But, and you're obviously going to do that, but like do it in a more creative way. Um, yeah. you know, lots of teams that have played the option teams knew going in that the team they were facing was going to play the option and they still couldn't stop them. Right. That's the whole thing. It's like, you know, they always say this with the service academies is that from if you were to bet on college football, in theory, um, <laughs> you look for teams that have seen the option a lot or have played the option a bunch. Because if it's the first time seeing it in any individual season and you're, you're not used to it, that those are teams that usually uh, shredded by the option. But it's the, um, yeah, yeah. the Paul Johnson era Georgia Tech. Yeah, I was going to say Georgia Tech kind of that way. Georgia Tech won games with the option, and people obviously we won the freaking Orange Bowl yeah. <laughs> with that offense. There's also been great Navy teams that you know it, it was very hard to stop, but legitimately good Navy teams. Um, and I guess Army was okay a couple of years ago. But yeah, that offense is complicated and you can't just install that on the fly. I mean, it's very complicated. It's all they practice. Yeah, that was what I was going to say is like, if you could imagine some kind of alternative situation where they had like a week uh, or more to install this, but still couldn't sign a quarterback and they were in the same situation, you have to think they would have put in some kind of like triple option or, you know, single wing or some uh, some kind of uh, crazy Maybe the pistol makes an appearance uh, in some of these, but they would have done a lot better because, like you said, Jeff, it's such an intricate offense that once you master it, the other team has no idea what's happening. They can't even replicate it in practice, and so you have that advantage. But you're not going to install that offense in like on 24 hours that's, notice. Yeah, unfortunately, that, that's fair. I suppose it is easier to like have someone who has thrown a quarterback, uh, thrown a ball before, like throw short you know, swing passes or, or set up the screen or something. That was what surprised me in that game. How many of the throws were longer throws? Like he's throwing downfield and it's picked off. Like, yes. <laughs> like, why are you throwing downfield? I guess just to, to, to make it a possibility, but. I, yeah. I guess to present the threat of that, to get 
people out of the box because um, I'm sure they were <laughs> they had the whole team up at near the line of scrimmage. And that was another key for the the uh, Georgia Tech option teams was like all almost all of our completions were super long. <laughs> there there were no short completions because you were not throwing to gain you know five to ten yards. You were running for that. Um, so I kind of could see what they were going for there, but it's like. Kendall Hinton, there's a reason why he could not hold on to the quarterback job at Wake Forest and got switched to receiver. It's a little tough to ask him to do that um, against an NFL defense. I'm I'm just sort of surprised the Broncos didn't have anyone else on the roster. I mean, I know they were like lobbying the league to get an assistant coach to play quarterback, but which would have been wild. Oh, you would have loved to have seen the implications of that. It's like, hey, so suddenly our quality control coach is Tony Romo. (laughs) 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 Tony Romo makes way more money. He makes way too much to be a quality control You'd have to pay him way much it's not feasible but um you would think that you they would have like a julian edelman type like a guy who played significant quarterback at college somewhere on the roster because you always see you see some of these guys on the halfback or wide receiver options throw really good balls and then you look and they you know might have been a former quarterback or at least a high school quarterback edelman's usually good for at least probably like a touchdown pass a year it feels like yeah for sure yeah, that was interesting. Um, that game. Wow. You know, it's funny too. I feel like that going back to our <laughs> previous conversation, that game, a lot of people wanted to watch it because they wanted to see just how bad it would be. And I wonder if that's like the wrong message to send to the NFL. <laughs> like, <laughs> like, let's just have madness ensue and everyone will want to watch and the ratings will be great. And like, I, you know, maybe we should have all turned it off. Well, I th- I think people wanted to watch it early because of the weirdness of it, but also like, oh my gosh, can they do this? Right. And then you watch like one drive from them and you're like, they're going to get murdered. And then you turn off the game. I feel like that must have been what Probably. <laughs> what happened, also, right? like the Saints were so bad in the first quarter too, that maybe a lot of people were like, yeah, we don't have to do this to ourselves. Let's go watch a good game. I mean, you just look at from a from a betting line stand. I think it went up from a spread of six with, uh, I guess, like who was going to start Locke or Rippin or one of those guys. To, I think it closed it around 17. And that is significant. I mean, we've seen lines move when a quarterback gets injured like six or seven points, but to move, you know, upwards of 10 points is is quite significant. Yeah. And I think our model wasn't really prepared for it either. <laughs> broke like the we, model. We, yeah. We assigned Kendall Hinton a value of zero, which is the value that represents an undrafted rookie starting quarterback. But we didn't have a, a, a value to assign a not quarterback starting also being an un, you know an undrafted rookie or, or whatever he was. So I, I think if we had to do it again, we should have assigned him like a negative 100 or something. Well, well like what that. did we assign Carson Wentz these days? Um, <laughs> oh, Jeff, that's harsh. Come on, I, I, take, I take the opportunities where I can. All right. Well, I think we can we can wrap up the rabbit hole there with a parting shot at Carson Wentz. <laughs> that was a great burn, Jeff. Yeah, love that. <laughs> okay, that will do it for this week's show. We'll be back in your feed next Tuesday. If you like what you heard, please subscribe. And if you are subscribed, please rate and review us on your podcast app of choice. It really does help new people discover the show. You can also email us at podcast at 538.com to let us know what you think. Our podcast producer is Sarah Shackett. Tony Chow is in the virtual control room. And our podcast commissioner is Chad Matlin. 
For Neil and Jeff, I'm Sarah. Thanks for listening. Talk to you next time.